Hello and welcome to the World of Intelligence, an open source intelligence podcast brought to you by the Jane's Intelligence Unit. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. Okay, I'm with Rob Pritchard, who is the cybersecurity expert for this episode of the Jane's OSINT podcast. Rob, it would be great to get you to maybe introduce yourself a little bit, because I don't think I'll do you justice, but we have worked together a fair bit in the past in terms of delivering training for OSINT analysts and giving them cybersecurity advice to keep them safe online. But that's obviously only a small part of what you do. So maybe it would be great for the listeners to get an idea of what you do fully as the cybersecurity expert and, and what sort of other services and experience um, you've got that you wanted to share. Okay, thanks, Terry. So, yeah, I'm Rob. Um, I've worked in cybersecurity, um, although it wasn't called cybersecurity when I first started doing it, for almost 20 years now, almost my entire career, um, and across a range of sectors. And I spent seven years um, in UK government doing uh, various different things related to cybersecurity in some of the successor organisations to what is now the National Cybersecurity Centre. And since 2012, I've worked myself. I've got my own company. And I do the, the OSINT trainings work with you, but I do a lot of consultancy as well. So working with companies to, to come up with cybersecurity strategies and quite a lot of work in the incident response and security, um, security operations, security monitoring space and actually a lot of training outside of uh, OSINT. So a lot of awareness training and um, internal sort of specialist skills training as well for companies who are trying to just either bolster awareness of threats or increase skills of existing staff internally. That's great. I mean, in, in this area of OSIN, there's a lot of people working in open source intelligence who are within a government organization, probably, and are doing things where they've got policies, procedures, technical measures to try and keep them safe online. But there's still a lot that people depend on in terms of their own understanding, their own behaviours to keep them safe. And is that the kind of thing that you might be brought in to help advise on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing I've worked with you on, and it's mm. the kind of thing I do. I do talk to other clients about. Um, and you're and you're right. Things have got better over, let's say, the last ten or fifteen years. Definitely, but you could be quite surprised to see very poor behavioural practices, even in organisations that have very sophisticated um, OSINT technical setups. And people can get a bit blasé about it. And, and there's especially, I think, sometimes there's a, there's a temptation in environments where you might not otherwise have easy access to the internet at your desk. Uh, and we've both uh, been in organisations like that, I'm sure, mm-hmm. for various reasons. You, you know, lots of government organisations do not have internet at the desk. The networks might be air-gapped. And so people sometimes see the the OSINT capabilities they have, which might be a standalone machine or a separate network, as general access to the Internet. Um, and they're off researching bars and signing into Gmail and Facebook and things like that and doing all the things that we use the Internet for, not unreasonably, but not really considering that um, they might be blowing their denial capability at the same time they're doing that. So it is the behavior is absolutely vital. Working culture really plays a part as well because – as you've described, you know, people might be working in those kinds of areas or roles where they've maybe had to leave their personal device outside the room. They're not able to access any of their personal things uh, or go online during the day. And then there is that immediate temptation when you've got a terminal that is dedicated to let people go online that they do start doing a lot of those personal things. Um, and it's probably quite natural, I suppose, in terms of behavior because you get so used to just going online 
and doing, you know, research alongside doing your own personal activity uh, when you're not at work, that perhaps um, that becomes sort of second nature and people fall into that trap quite easily. What sort of things do you advise people when they're working in that sort of environment to help them avoid falling into that trap? So it's difficult. I mean, as you know, it, it falls down to both individuals, I think, and manuscript culture. And I've seen a setup sort of pretty good. You know, they, they might be, you might get somebody in who understands the technical side and understands the operational side, gets everything set up, and then you have two or three staff changes, and you're a couple of effectively a couple of generations down the line, and people have forgotten the good practice or they don't take it seriously or whatever it might be, and so that kind of bad practice uh, sinks in. For the environments we're talking about, if you're in a government agency and you are doing open source intelligence analysis, you presumably have requirements around deniability and that you don't want your targets to know that your organization or you personally are um, digging into them. And, and you will also have requirements around your own sort of personal security because you don't want to, if you're, if you're researching really capable threat actors like the GRU or something, you don't want them identifying you personally and then collaring you when you cross the border somewhere in the future. And so there are, you know, there's there's those considerations. And, and really the only thing to do, the only trick, if you like, is discipline, self-discipline, um, following the procedures that are laid out and not allowing yourself to fall into the trap of using it as a personal web browsing service. You make it sound so simple. Um. Well, it's, it's just, I'm not I'm, I'm not there. I've been in these environments and I, I've worked there. And it is, it, you know, it's so easy because you're so reliant on, on the Internet for things like you know, even just paying bills and things. Right. It's super tempting yeah. to log in. And I, I think the, the best thing people can do uh, sort of organizationally is, to, is provide a means for people to do that which isn't also your, you know, sensitive OSINT network. Although then, of course, you have to have the discipline the other way. Don't go Google your targets when you're um, <laughs> on, the, on the home oh. banking network or whatever it might be. I mean, that is the thing, isn't it? We, we do find people who, you know, even now in, in various sort of government organizations that we, we provide training to who you'll hear them say things like, well, you know, I just sort of Googled that when I was at home. And you think, oh, no, please, please don't don't sort of combine your own personal activity with your work-related research, if you're in an environment where you need to maintain some level of secrecy in terms of not giving away your requirements, but it's it does still happen. You know, It is so tempting, I think, for people to overlap their personal and, and, and their professional work in this, in this way. How much of it comes down to people needing to understand better the types of threat actors and the types of threats that they face? Is that something that you find is, is not always clear for them? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think I think um, helping people understand the, the threats is, is one thing, definitely. And I do quite a lot of awareness training, like I've said, um, and not, not you know, sort of generic awareness training, not necessarily OSIN analysts. Um, and I've done, I work with companies who, um, not exclusively, uh, but with companies who might be targeted by more capable threat actors, basically. Um, so foreign states, mostly. You know, I think explaining to people the risks they face, um, and they're not, you know, they're not necessarily trying to make people terrified, but explaining. I think for me, a key, a key differentiator is that if you believe you might be targeted by a nation state, you've got to act at all times like they are targeting you because, you know, you're not, you're not going to get some red flag going up and saying, Oh, yes, the GRU are trying to break into your mailbox right now. You know, you need mm -hmm. to assume that all the time and equally. Mm -hmm. I think something people perhaps don't really think about is the fact that it's, it sounds obvious, but they are targets in their personal life as well. If you work for an organization and you're doing research into GRU or North Korea or whoever it might be, um, or they regard you as a threat, then they're not. They don't restrict themselves to targeting you at work. They'll try and fish you for your home Gmail account, for your Facebook or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, and the same is true true for OSINT analysts, the danger of mm -hmm. mixing in 
you know, making that one mistake, which either blows your um, operational network or your own identity might not be obvious at the time, but it might it might come back and, and haunt you later. So I think definitely describing the problem to people and, and the, the sort of impacts, the capabilities of the people who might target you, the impacts that might have, um, I think is always a good place to start with any kind of training. Yeah, got it. Got it. I think um, that, that's certainly, I think, something that people need to be aware about. What you've just alluded to there in terms of the sort of state actors and the kind of threats that people might face if they're researching those countries, how can a, a sort of more generalist OSINT analyst stay on top of how that threat environment might be changing? Is that something they can do? You probably can, but I mean, I appreciate it's difficult because the mm. person doing the, the threat intelligence analysis or the OSINT analysis is probably not necessarily going to be the subject matter expert on the capabilities of the, you know, the hostile SIGINT agency or whatever it might be. So it's not, it's not going to be easy, but I think there's going to be sets of good practice, like not using the operational network for personal things, like ensuring that you don't, you know, leak information between sessions, things like that. Like not taking your work home with you, which are just good practice at a minimum and, and should hopefully stand you in good stead, regardless of how the threat environment changes. And I think it's also probably worth saying that the, the kind of threats we're talking about now are right at the top end of the scale. You know, if you're to a target organized crime, it's still really, really important that you take your um, personal security seriously because you definitely don't want organized criminals turning up on your doorstep. But equally, they don't have the capabilities of, a, of an NSA like entity. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You know, we're t- obviously, we're talking about open source intelligence in the sense of security and defense professionals doing open source intelligence to try and uh, work out what perhaps some of the threat actors they're looking at might be doing then in a defensive capacity, thinking about how they protect themselves from some of those threat actors who they might be researching. But in terms of the way that open source intelligence has developed, I guess, in the last 10 years, we see it used much more as a term now in the cybersecurity sector. And um, it gets, I think, a bit confusing for people because there is a different type of open source intelligence. You know, when you're talking about using open source intelligence for purposes such as pen testing, etc., I think yeah. it's worth probably us clarifying for people, you know, obviously that we're not talking about that kind of open source intelligence in this context. But do you see, do you see people's, people getting those wires crossed or getting confused between the two things? I don't know necessarily see people getting confused because it's different worlds, but I think you're right. The, the, the kind of OSINT that we, so, you know, most of the open source analysis I do tends to be technical, right? I'm looking for, I don't know, like uh, to, to pick something out of the head. I, I've, I've been looking at a client now who potentially had an Office 365 estate compromised, and, I, and I'm trying to trying to work out how that's happened. Can I can I tie anything back to a particular threat actor, or is it random? Was it just somebody with a weak password? Mm. So the kinds of analysis I'm doing is, is trying to take the indicators of compromise that I have that I can see from from the from the client's logs and see if I can connect that to a broader infrastructure, um, domain registrations and all that kind of thing. And it's a lot of the same techniques that you'd use for, for the kinds of things you're talking about. And you may stray into that territory, of course, because if it is a nation state, then I definitely don't want to go around poking at nation state infrastructure from my own, you know, home home network. But yeah, you're right. It is, it is there are sort of I think it's quite a broad church what we what we talk about OSIN mm. now in terms of the kind of activities people do. Yeah, no, it's, it is, I think, and I think certainly from what we see, I think there is a little bit of confusion around it because the term does get used in, yeah. in those different contexts. But it's interesting you talk about doing that more technical analysis using the similar techniques. Has that become easier or harder over the last few years? Have you seen many changes in that area? 
So things like GDPR actually had quite an impact because you don't necessarily get um, when you register a domain. So like, I don't know, Google.com is a domain. Mm. And when you mm. register a domain, you have to give um, details. You have to give a name and email address and a phone number, things like that. Now, you could fake those details. They don't have to be real. But what you would find is that people who were setting up large scale um, hacking infrastructure would get a bit lazy and they would use, you know, the same faked details. Or it has to be a valid mm-hmm. email address. They have to be able to access it. So they might use the same email address to register domains for lots of their, their what we'd call the command and control infrastructure, the hacking infrastructure. And so once mm-hmm. you done picked something, an email address or something else, a fake address or a phone number could lead you to the rest of the infrastructure. And that's got harder because of GDPR, because lots of that data is now redacted. But the flip side of that is that there are many, many more companies doing this work. And there are lots and lots of tools that's full of indicators of compromise which help you do this analysis basically there's much more the the landscape from when i was doing this uh, when i was in government uh, i mean i left in 2012 and the last three three years i was sort of semi-senior so i wasn't doing a lot of hands-on analysis so when i was doing this in government in 2009 um the tools we had available the open source analysis was much much harder you had to do an awful lot of legwork yourself although the flip side people were perhaps less secure so once you'd cracked the nut you could maybe unpick it a bit more um but yeah, the the tools available now and the the depth of data available is quite impressive. Um, so you could do, you know, for for, for the sort of smaller or, or somebody who isn't the FBI or the security service or whatever they might be, the the set data sets that are available to you are really quite useful. Do you need to understand and plan for tomorrow's threats without diverting valuable resources from the threats you face today? At Jane's, we deliver a cutting-edge, trusted, open-source intelligence on current, emerging, and future threats and assessments of the capabilities you need to mitigate them. Jane's is the only single resource for comprehensive, structured, and connected intelligence on military equipment, inventories, and orders of battle, which means we can help you reveal previously hidden connections. We also provide data and insight on conventional and asymmetric threats, including terrorism, extremism, and organized crime. So, if you are tired of collecting and processing overwhelming volumes of inconsistent and unstructured data, let us reduce your workload. Jane's assess, validates, and verifies huge volumes of data and then adds insight you need to focus your resources. We can also help improve your open source intelligence capability through intelligence reporting, RFI services, and open source intelligence tradecraft training. If that sounds good, Visit janes.com forward slash intelligence unit to find out more. Definitely people are more privacy aware. It doesn't necessarily mean they're doing the right thing. So you, I think you, you sent me a link to, to Strava the other day about how hard it is to get your privacy settings on Strava, right, which is the sports tracking website. If people don't know what sports tracking application. Mm. And, and it's I, one that we've talked about quite a bit in the past, isn't it? So, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Strava mm. and some of the other rivals have leaked things like, um, you know, the military bases in Afghanistan and things like that because people track their activity. Um, mm. And I and I really like Strava. I use it. But if you want to use it to its fullest, then you right. want to, you know, you want to compete with your friends on the on the leaderboards or things like that. You have to make some information public. If you make it all private, you don't feature on those leaderboards. So it's quite a, you know, a sort of powerful anti-privacy incentive. Um, and you could do things like set privacy zones. But I live in a village, and I set a privacy zone, but I'm not particularly convinced it gives me much um, additional cover. But yeah, so I think I think you're right. I mean, I think I don't know it swings and roundabouts. Definitely, I I advise people on um, ensuring 
I don't want to lecture people on what they shouldn't shouldn't share, but I try and encourage people to be mindful about the information they are sharing. So just to make sure that they have reviewed the privacy settings on the things they use so that they are happy with the, you know, the, the data that they are sharing. Cause it's really easy not to realize that settings have changed or things like that. And, and you're leaking much more information than perhaps you intended. Are, are people becoming more savvy or is there still that sort of element of, Oh wow, I didn't realize all that was out there. I think it's a real mix to be honest, mm. because you're almost by definition, the people who are asking, asking somebody like me the questions are probably concerned in the first place. Yeah, true. So they're, not, enough, yeah. they're not, you know, they're not going to be necessarily surprised at the worst case and they're going to be pleased if there's not too much about them. So I, yeah, I think it's, um, I think there is probably a, a huge amount of naivety. I used to use, um, not to, not to sort of shout out to specific tools, but I used to use Pipple, just the free tier, which has vanished now, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But I always found that. Well, it's, it's still available as a, as a paid for tool, I guess, isn't it? It's not cheap mm-hmm. either. It's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I've used them for free for years. So it's probably about time I reached into my pocket, but I used to use that <laughs> to, as a really good example. You know, you could chuck a phone number in and see what you could find out about people or an email address. And that would always, always open eyes. And people would be really astonished about how just literally one indicator, you know, a phone number or an email address uh, could not every single time. Like you say, it sort of slightly depends on region, but it's a pretty sure thing. If I had a class of 20 people and got a few numbers or email addresses into people, I reckon three out of four would bring back the right person and give employment history and, and, and education history, social networks they use, things like that. It was really powerful. And that, as you say, that data is still out there. It's just behind a paywall now, or there'll be other service providers, I'm sure. Is that a limitation in, in the sense that I think as much as people might be aware of those resources and what information might, might be there, they might not necessarily be able to go out and use them or investigate using them fully uh, to find out what other people might be able to get on them. Yeah, I think that's true. That's absolutely a valid point, because if you've got a, a paid for subscription for something at work, you might not necessarily have it at home to, to do the same thing. So you're right. You might not have the same tools available. But I think you could probably at least get, you know, if you're if if you are hopefully if you're that that into the world, if you like, you probably have some some other avenues you could use to to work a little bit harder to try and find the information. So your free your paid tools are probably going to let you down sometimes anyway. Um, so hopefully it doesn't it doesn't prohibit people completely from doing that work. But it's an absolutely valid point. If these things are behind paywalls, then um, you're not going to pay the five hundred dollars a month or whatever it might be just to do the, your own um, security mm. checking. So that's, mm, no, for sure. Um, are there any other sort of um, tools or or resources that you've seen come online in the recent past that you you thought actually these could be really beneficial for people, not just in cybersecurity, but as general OSINT analysts? I've been curating a list, actually. Um, I can't I can't think of anything right now. A lot of the ones mm. I've been looking at are more around, like I said, more around technical. There's quite a lot of um, there's quite a lot of um sort of um, repositories of, of technical information and doing things like the OSINT um, for penetration testing or security testing of organizations, because I do quite a lot of work in that kind of space. So trying to brute force domain names and find resources and things like that. There's quite a lot of tools in that space um, that have, have proven quite useful. Um, mm. And I think, you know, that we lost, um, what's his, uh, Michael, um, he took all his tools down recently, didn't he as well? So, Michael yeah. Basil from Intelligence Techniques, yeah. yeah. I think in the in the sort of more general OSINT space, that's, that's patronising. I don't mean it like that. In the non the non technical OSINT <laughs> space, I think sure. there's definitely been a lot of the tools that I've I've used have, have sort of vanished recently. Whereas in the technical OSINT space, I think it's got a bit richer because it perhaps targets a slightly smaller and different set of people, um, or different set of analysts. 
although there's still lots of paid for tools out there as well. But yeah, I've got, uh, I mean, I'm happy to share my useful tools list with you. Um, if you, you would be interested, uh, I'm sure you'll I'm always, this. I'm always interested. Um, you know, we, we like to keep abreast of any useful tools and resources that are out there. Yeah. There's a couple of things I was looking at recently around and um, looking for finding emails in, in leaks. So there's obviously have I been pwned, but Troy does it responsibly. So it's, you know, you can't necessarily pivot on the findings to, to other, um, other, um, sources or passwords. So there's a few resources in that space that I was looking at recently for something. And, and do you find, I mean, we certainly find from the general OSINT perspective, in terms of the online community of OSINT practitioners that's out there, people are generally quite helpful. People share a lot of stuff and a lot of tips, advice, links to new resources, etc. Do you get the same benefits on some of the more technical um, tools that you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. I'm always cribbing mm-hmm. stuff from people on Twitter. There's, uh, like you say, mm-hmm. those people are really helpful, but also people are always either writing new tools or, or sharing, sharing or putting up new services, things like that. So definitely, yeah, yeah, the Twitter is an absolutely fantastic resource, both mm-hmm. for your OSIN analysis, but for learning how to do it and finding <laughs> the tools as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, just cycling back on, you know, one of the things we touched on earlier, which was thinking about threats and threat intelligence. We talked about this in the past, uh, you and I, about threat intelligence and, and the benefits or limitations of it. Um, is the threat intelligence better now? Is it easier for people to either access it or use it or to use it to better protect themselves? I think the answer is probably not that straightforward. Um, mm. so I think the threat intelligence world is is a good one and there's lots of useful there are lots of generally useful services out there but i can count possibly even on one finger the numbers of clients <laughs> that i've worked with who right. actually understand threat intelligence can lay out some requirements around how what, what they want from a provider and how they're going to use it and then have the analysts themselves on site to tune it either into their protection tools or into training or awareness briefings or whatever it might be so i think threat intelligence has definitely suffered from being a bit of a buzzword and lots of things are that people say we've got to have a threat intelligence source and so people will sign up for threat intelligence source and then they'll get emails or they'll get indicators of compromise. And it's like, well, what, what do we do with it? We, you know, we can't use this. Yeah. And literally, I've been to companies. I went to a, a critical infrastructure provider in the UK um, and they told me the threat intelligence feed. So they signed up for it. When I looked, you know, in an Outlook shared mailbox, there's thousands of unread emails in them. So nobody, they paid these subscription oh. fees and literally nobody did it. But they could check the box saying, you know, well, we've got threat intelligence. Wow. You know, it's difficult because what when I say to people, well, when people start saying, well, we do some threat intelligence, like, what are you going to do with it? And lots of times it's all physical space. It's useful because, OK, we, we know that there's unrest in this city. So we definitely will, as we were having the conversation about before we started recording, you know, we'll make sure everybody goes in armoured cars and only goes to the pre-approved hotels. And you could definitely see value for it there. And I think it's easier to articulate. But when you start talking about sort of cyber threats or threat actors, it's a little bit harder because you can't, you know, you don't get that kind of information a lot of the the technical threat intelligence ip addresses and things like that is is useful but you've got to have analysts who could use it and a lot of times it just gets churned into the security tools anyway so it'll be in your um the indicators of compromise will be in your antivirus or whatever other tool you've got right they they will be the consumers of the threat intelligence not not you as a punter and so finding a sort of happy medium where people actually can describe what they want and then find providers of that and then use it properly is quite tricky and i haven't seen it done well often in that sort of threat space though we mentioned earlier sort of the state level actors that people might be worried about if there have been further developments in recent years in terms of the capability of non-state 
threat actors? Is that something you're seeing more of and is it something you're having to deal with at all? Yeah, so there's lots of, I mean, there's NSO, the, uh, I think they're the Israeli spyware company who have been very controversial and are, um, they were mm. the people behind the, um, sort of WhatsApp exploit, but not them, they sold the capability. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's become a lot easier, um, for countries to sort of bootstrap their, their cyber espionage, for want of a better word, capability. Um, and, you know, there's been reporting, some really good reporting in, in the open source and wired and others about the UAE. And there was some another country, maybe it was Saudi recently, recruiting ex-NSA and ex-CIA analysts to, to go over there and set up their hacking teams. And so mm-hmm. um, I think, yeah, I've pivoted back to talking about nation states, haven't I? But I think there are there are, have, yeah. um, <laughs> there are lots of people. There's lots of private sector organizations who are selling their services to nation states. So the nation states get the capability, even if it's not them who are developing it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't I mean, I think the the there probably are developments in cybercrime. But, the you know, the, the big things we're seeing in the sort of crime, organized crime space are still ransomware, targeted ransomware. Mm-hmm. Um, so blocking, you know encrypting whole organizations and then demanding money to, to, to get the decryption key. So it's a sort of slightly different set of requirements, I think. In terms of open source intelligence practitioners, if they're working on their own, if they are perhaps not supported by a lot of infrastructure behind them, so is there a sort of setup that you would walk people through at a basic level to say, okay, here's, here's the minimum of what you need to have in place yeah, so I mean, I think you know, for the sort of at home or the less less well budgeted um, open source intelligence analyst, I think you know the, the tools available actually are they're really good anyway. So it's I don't think you necessarily need a good budget, and a lot of it is the discipline. You know, the, the security comes from the, the self discipline rather than the technical tools. First of all, you want to make sure your platform isn't compromised, and you need to make sure that it isn't compromised long term. So do your research in a you know things like virtual machines are your friend. There's lots of, um, there's a VM, VMware do a, a free tier, or there's VirtualBox, both of which are free. And they allow. Are those easy for people to set up these days? Yeah, or? pretty easy. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. You don't need to be technical if you are. So I, I don't know the Buscador. The Buscador. Back to Michael again. The the intelligence techniques. They they have Buscador, which is a the Linux operating system, which comes with lots of open source intelligence tools on it, and they talk you through how to how to set it all up. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's necessarily a cakewalk if you've never done it before, but I think if you're wanting to be an OSINT analyst and understanding your tools. Yeah, and just for those people listening who maybe don't have um, a strong technical understanding, what's the advantage of a virtual machine, or what does a virtual machine do? So a virtual machine, essentially, I'm, I'm sat here talking to you on a Mac, um, and I've got VirtualBox on here, which means I can also run a Windows operating system and a Linux operating system, which is an open source operating system, at the same time, and I can flip between them. The good thing about the virtual environments is I can set them up in different ways. So if you are doing something I recommend to people when they are doing um, their open source analysis um, is to, to build your virtual machine, whatever whatever you want to use for that. And I said Buscador comes with lots of tools, but you can easily build your own. Um, and, you you know, it's really important that you keep everything up to date, sort of standard security good practice. So you can uh, build a virtual machine. You can take a, a snapshot of that. And then every time you do a new investigation, you can basically launch a new virtual machine off that snapshot. And it means that, A, if that's compromised, your host isn't compromised. So your, your actual working, your, your day-to-day computer isn't compromised, just a virtual machine. But also, you know, when you roll back to your known good build, the compromise is gone. Admittedly, all your data is gone as well. So it's important that you have a way of getting off your <laughs> analysis. Um, and I've mm. done that. 
I've rebooted back into a date state accidentally without um, taking off the analysis. I know it's painful, um, but it's worth it because, yeah. you know, you know that A, if, if your machine is compromised, you've just wiped it and you're starting from scratch, but also that there's no data leakage, right? You're, you've got a nice clean build. It hasn't got all your search history, hasn't got all the cookies and all the things like that on there from your previous investigations. And then I think the other thing, so using uh, virtual machines gives you that segregation between your your main platform and your analyst tools. And, you know, Tor really is the, probably the easiest way to ensure so that the, the Tor browser. Tor browser, yeah. The, yeah. So to mm-hmm. providing anonymous network access. And, and mm-hmm. it's probably as good as anything you're, well, it's probably better than anything you're going to build yourself. And it might not be suitable for every purpose. Because if you are using Tor, then, you know, it's pretty easy for an observer, for somebody looking in the logs of their website, for instance, to see that somebody has visited this website from a Tor browser, so from the anonymizing network. Can websites use that to sort of block access to people who might come to their website from the, you know, uh, yeah, you can, browser? Yeah, you can. And yeah. there are problems that will block mm. Tor access for you if, if you want to. Uh, mm. Most people don't tend to bother because it's, well, <laughs> And it's um, people have legitimate reasons for wanting to use Tor, but you can. You mm-hmm. can just block access if you wanted to. So there are downsides to using Tor as well. But I think for a lot of the time, if you're just doing general research and you just want to make sure that it's not obvious that it's you sat at your home network doing it, then Tor is probably the, the easiest way to accomplish that. Although you can use VPNs and things as well, although it depends on the, you know, you might want to start having to find ways to pay for them, which don't lead back to you, depending on how paranoid and, and your research is. <laughs> Sure. You know, yeah. Once you start unpicking things, it can be quite challenging to to really, really be deniable. So Tor, Tor is a good, um, is a really useful tool. So virtual machines and Tor, and just having that discipline to make sure that when you start a new OSINT investigation, um, you you start with a, a fresh build, and you can have lots of virtual machines, so you can you know you can run concurrent investigations, but you just get that segregation. Then yeah. you're not risking the compromise of one investigation doesn't blow all your other investigations. I suspect as those tools, like you said, um, with virtual machines, they're becoming easier to use or they have become easier to use. And the Tor browser is, has always been very easy to use. One of the things, you know, for people who are listening who maybe have used Tor in the past, I don't know if, you, if you've noticed this, Rob, or, or not, but um, I, I know several years ago trying to use it was actually quite painful because it was generally very slow. Yeah. Um, but it's improved a lot, I think, in terms of speed over the last couple of years. They seem to have added a lot more uh, nodes to the network to give it more bandwidth is that reflected in your usage of it as well i see it used all the time for malicious activity for for hacking and things like that so uh yeah it's obviously got a lot more use but it has i mean i think edward snowden did us all a favor there because um tor tor pre-snowden was you know kind of usable but there weren't really ever that many active nodes and tor post-snowden where lots of people (laughs) are up in arms about privacy has become much much more um, usable and the list of active nodes is really big now. Um, so yeah, it definitely has. And you could do things like, I mean, we've done it every on trainings. So people have been watching yep. YouTube videos mm. and stuff over it, which you just wouldn't have been able to do, um, mm. about well, six or seven years ago, definitely. Yeah. And I think, uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Edward Snowden and there's not many ex-government people, I think, or certainly current government people who would say he's done us a favor. Um, but very, um, caveat that, that he's made something yeah. talk more useful, but yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, any development in a tool like that is driven by demand. And I suppose the more people that use it, the more they will grow the network and they will add more resource to it. And, you know, they'll have more volunteers coming along and, and joining the network. So, yeah, I think those kinds of tools definitely will, will 
improve. Interesting what you've described in terms of the tools, but also that discipline and having the, the, the right things in place in terms of the practice that people um, follow and keeping keeping that separation between the, the professional and personal activity online. Um, do people also need to worry about, like, like we've alluded to already, um, the level of information they put out, the, out there about themselves? If they are, let's say for somebody in your sort of role where you're, you know, you're in the private sector, you've got your own, um, uh, business, et cetera, you, you, you need to publicize your activities. You can't just sort of hide and be anon- entirely anonymous online. Do you sort of have concerns sometimes about how much you put out there or do you try and limit it in any way? Um, is that something that you worry about at all? It is, yeah. And then, you know, it's because I, I, you know, you inherit the risks of your customers in some ways, because if you're providing security advice to people who might be targeted by capable state actors, those capable state actors may decide that you yourself are worthy of target. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, it does. And, and like you say, I, I sort of need to be public because I want people to pay me money to, to do some work. And if customers can't find you, then, then they won't. So I try, I try, I try and be sensible. I've got more relaxed about LinkedIn, for instance, over the years, although I still sort of limit what people can see um at least a little bit you can only get the sort of highlights without actually connecting to me um and but i i, I use social media and things so i use twitter a lot so it it, mm. it it does but i try and then make sure that i um and i do what i what i preached in that i make sure that i'm happy with the privacy settings and things um and i um you know i i just follow all the sort of security best practice and i keep everything um, I'm quite paranoid, basically. I have two-factor authentication turned on for everything. Um, everything's encrypted when I take it with me. Um, uh, those mm. those kinds of sensible steps. And I, you know, if I'm doing OSINT research and things like that, I do try and use my virtual machines and, and Tor and so on. Mm. And in terms of the information you put, you post online on on platforms like Twitter, etc. Do you try? Well, I mean, I follow you on Twitter, and I know it's sort of it can, you know, like anybody else, you're using it for a mix of stuff. You'll yeah. um, post things which are professionally relevant, and uh, occasionally, you know, stuff which is more personal, I guess. The so the, the Friday, <laughs> Friday updates from the dog. Yeah, yeah the dog. Yeah, pe- yeah. I love the dog pictures every Friday. Um, I, I don't know if we can mention her name online or if it's classified, but um, yeah, no. uh, she's, she's not a classified <laughs> dog. She's sat sleeping. She's not a classified dog. Okay, yeah. good, good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, is that something that you sort of then look at and think, okay, that potentially creates a vulnerability? Because, you know, if, if somebody sends you an email saying, oh, great news, uh, there's a, an offer on uh, free dog food or something like that, you know, from your local uh, pet supplier or whatever it might be, um, you know, some sort of social engineering, is that something you then have to keep an eye out for? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, I, yes, I haven't actually seen those emails, but that, well, I was going to say, we're all getting too paranoid there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, you know, everything you put out there gives a bit more information about yourself. And I, and I worry, um, uh, you know, the, the Bellingcat reports with the, the GRU guys traveling all over the Alps. Um, and I live in the Alps, so they came to where I live. And I think oh, that's a bit weird. That's a bit alarming. I, my fret model didn't, didn't really include the GRU coming around to my house. Um, so I, you know, I do, I do, I do worry about security and I, I do take it seriously. And I, you know, I have to, I, you know, we all, we all live our lives. And I think the approach that's just more generally about security, I think I try and encourage people to ensure that the practices you follow mean that days that you make a mistake, you limit the impact of that mistake. So the days that you, the days that you do something wrong, you haven't blown your entire operational network or you haven't blown your, you know, your, your entire case or whatever it might be, because people make mistakes and the same in our personal life. So that's why I'm pretty 
pretty strict about making sure, well, very strict. In fact, I have a password manager. I have unique passwords for everything. I have two-factor authentication turned on for absolutely everything that I can. Um, and so, the, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that I get fished, but hopefully hopefully, it, it limits uh, the at least the immediate impact of that if somebody gets a password to anything important because they won't have the second factor. Now, obviously, there are, you can do sort of real-time fishes and things like that against people to try and get that second factor, but it gives me some breathing space. Hopefully, I've limited the potential failure modes, if you like. Um, so I think that's that that's the important thing for the security practices to make sure that the, it's like having a seatbelt or airbags or something in your car. Every now and again, things are going to go wrong, so you try and reduce the impact you know, I think it's appropriate to be paranoid when you're traveling or even at home with because obviously the, the beauty of um, cyber espionage is it doesn't have to be done in person. Um, but I think you just need to make sure you build in appropriate security controls in your personal behavior. And I, you know, I appreciate I do do stare stuff online and, and you're right. It would be better practice or maybe better practice if I literally had no social media presence. But I, I just don't think, A, I think that's probably overkill for me. Um, but B, I, you know, I need to. I need a social media presence because it's the way I get work. That's great. Um, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground there, Rob. Thanks for joining me. And uh, it's been a really interesting discussion, as always. And, um, yeah, I mean, if, if people want to find out more about your work or figure out more about what you're doing, they can uh, find you at the cybersecurityexpert.com. That's right. And yeah. I guess on all the socials as well. Go to the website and, and you can find me on there. You must have been delighted when that domain name was available. I was, yeah. My, my <laughs> business plan was somebody buying off me for a lot of money, but that hasn't happened, so I have to work. <laughs> That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. <laughs>